Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You and Get Well. We're uh, now in shops in the UK as Get Well, What Doctors Don't Tell You in the US. And with the latest podcast, vlogcast, with all the news that we think is of interest. And so without further ado, let's kick off. First item up, permanent hair dyes and chemical straighteners increase the risk of breast cancer by up to 60%. And the this is this, this took place in America, the study, and they said that African-American women are at special risk um, especially if they use the hair dye every five to eight weeks. Uh, the overall risk amongst all women is around 9%, but still quite substantial. Um, chemical straighteners, too, carry a breast cancer risk of around 30% for, for any women. The, the ones that get off the hook are the semi-permanents and temporary dyes that don't seem to have any sort of cancer risk at all. And it's a substantial study. It involved over 46,000 women. And so the, uh, the people from the um, sister study uh, are pretty confident that it is the permanent hair dyes and straighteners that are the cause of these breast cancers. So they're saying, look, there are many things going on in life. There are many, many causes of cancer, but this is yet another stress to the immune system. And that being the case, look elsewhere to color your hair. And of course, people who are avid followers of Lynn will have noticed over the years that her hair has gone from a dark brown black to her natural grace. So obviously, Lynn, you read the news early. <laughs> I didn't just read the news. I actually started to get symptoms, not of breast cancer, but my voice started getting really congested. Mm. And of course, I partly make my living speaking. So this was a bit of a disaster. So I went to a naturopath we know, and he took one look at me and he said, what are you coloring your hair with? And I went, oh, no. Yeah, it's permanent hair dye. And of course, the big culprits are the dark hair dyes, like I was using to match my natural color, which is dark brown black, basically. So with that, I decided to stop using it. And because my hair is short, it was pretty easy to grow it out. And I never looked back and the throat thing cleared up. And presumably any breast cancer risk I've got now from the hair dye is gone. But Here's the interesting thing, Brian. Um, it is the dark hair dyes, mostly dark and red, which contain a nasty substance that is basic. I think it's called uh, a phenyldiamine, something like that. It's got phenyldiamine in it. And those are the products that really cause hmm. all manner of illnesses. They're very very carcinogenic. They also cause all kinds of other things. So embrace your grays. I mean, that's what I've found. And it's very interesting. I found loads of my friends who were starting to go gray, you know, deciding to go gray and to use their natural color, like it better. Mm. And I certainly do too. It suits you. It like suits it. you. I think, I, like I think it. it does. And I think what's interesting is that the researchers really were looking purely at the breast cancer risk, 
But of course, as you uh, said, Lynn, there are many other problems, health problems associated with these permanent hair dyes. And you mentioned a couple of other ones, and there could be many more besides, because after all, yeah, it's chemicals racing around your body, isn't it? So any number of systemic health problems could could result from using these dyes. Absolutely. Uh, One of the big ones was mm, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Well, I was about to say, which is a natural one, really, you'd associate with exactly that uh, application of chemicals. Mm -hmm. I would expect to see that. Um, Unfortunately, the, the, the researchers didn't check for that they were just just zoning in on on breast cancer but it seems that um the risks start appearing after about a year of use which is interesting i mean when did you start oh not till well into my 40s and um but how long were you taking the dyes before you noticed symptoms of some sort um oh well good 15 years and then i just started to realize Mm. yeah i think Mm. it was around I don't know. I think mm. I probably only used the dyes mm. for about 15 years. Mm. But in that time, my throat just got more and more congested. Right. And mm. I know other dark-haired people and it, who are yeah. having the same issue. I it's, mean, of course, the, the people in the front line here, apart from people having it, are the people applying it too. And I mean, I don't know if they've done studies amongst hairdressers too who apply these dyes. Oh, they do. Yeah. And the, mm. there's a big incidence of cancer among the colorists who use dark hair dyes. And of course, the most famous instance of it was Jackie Kennedy Onassis, who was famously dark haired, dyeing her hair for years and died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. So you have a choice, guys. You can either go natural like Lynn or bald like me. But but don't use permanent hair dyes. Thanks, Lynn. How do you lose weight, or more exactly, how do you lose weight easily? Because that's the $64,000 question for most people. How do I do it without trying? And, um, you know, there are plenty of ways you can lose weight, of course, through uh, exercise, eating sensibly, eating well, avoiding the high GI foods. There's loads of ways you can do it. But researchers reckon this is tough for most people and the idea of exercising every day or following these diets is difficult for most folk, particularly those already got health issues and uh, problems as it is. And they say the way to do it is by actually just eating within a set time window. And uh, for their particular experiment from the Salk Institute, they were looking at a window of just 10 hours in which you eat. So you have your breakfast on hour one and you have your last meal before hour 10 and then you fast for 14 hours but which sounds an awful lot but of course that does include the seven to eight hours you're sleeping and it seems to work rather well they uh, did a it's a very small study i must stress but it's an interesting one just 19 people who have what is known as metabolic syndrome which is the early signs of type 2 diabetes so blood sugar levels all over the place insulin is Uh, badly controlled and the next step from that is diabetes itself so these uh, 19 participants all took part in this 10 hour window of eating and um, 
And uh, so they uh, did this for about three months. And at the end of that, they said, well, how did they do? Well, they did rather well. Um, They're all reported sleeping better. And they all had a reduction in their body weight, their body mass index, their BMI, uh, fat around the waist. All were down, as were the usual risk factors for diabetes and heart disease. Average blood pressure measures and cholesterol levels all reducing as were blood sugar and insulin levels. They also fell. And they said this was such a simple, easy thing for people to follow. Eating within a 10-hour time window was doable. Those were able to do it. And what was quite interesting was they all actually ended up eating less as a result because, you know, it's quite a short window when you think about it. And they're not feeling terribly, you know, hungry so within that time, they were they didn't eat so much when they did sit down and eat. So, yeah, it was quite an interesting experiment, which worked very well. I mean, it's, yeah, people have looked at this sort of thing before, calling it either the fast diet or whatever it might be. This is a, this is a variation on that theme, and it seems to work for all those who can't exercise, won't exercise, eat sensibly, and all the rest of it. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, in our latest issue. Um, in our January issue, we have a diabetes special. And one of the ways to reverse diabetes, Brian, Mm -hmm. is this intermittent fasting, as they're talking about, with Mm -hmm. a big window Mm -hmm. between dinner and breakfast the next day. Now, you can do it other ways, too, where you, you know, delay breakfast or eliminate breakfast and start with lunch Mm -hmm. and then have a, a later dinner. But what we're talking about with you was, say, finishing your breakfast at eight and then having dinner at six is basically that 10-hour window. And then that that is what a lot of people do, actually. Mm. Uh, but they snack a lot after that. And that's the point, is mm. to stop snacking yeah. in between yeah. and yeah. to allow your body to go through that rejuvenation process by not having to deal with food. Because mm. when we have food... everything focuses on digesting. Yeah, that's right. And I think that is the point. I mean, they said the 10-hour window is important, but I really feel that the 14-hour period when you don't eat is even more important. The 14-hour fast, for want of a better term, is even more important. And when you think that, you know, seven to eight hours of that, you're actually asleep, it's not an incredibly, (laughs) incredible hardship. Um, I think it's doable, and it seems to be extremely effective. And the reason why it's effective, the um, uh, researchers reckon, is because it seems to time very nicely with our own internal body clocks. And it really is the point you were just alluding to, Lynn, that it seems to... This seems to be the sort of like the natural tempo of the body is to um, eat over shorter periods and then fast. And I think you're right. But if you, you start snacking off that point, then you kickstart the whole process again. Even if it's just, you know, something quite light, you nonetheless are starting the process. And then the body just needs to rest for that period of time to allow it to properly metabolize the food. I would say there's one other thing that the researchers didn't talk about. They didn't talk about quality of food, which I think is really important in terms of preventing yourself from snacking. One of the things that prevents that is getting rid of the fast sugars in your body. Mm. So the grains, the sugars, the refined carbs, all of those you know, turn into sugar quickly, and the body craves them very, very 
you know, quickly. So you spike up and down and that makes you hungry and want to eat. When you eliminate those, as you do with a paleo diet or a ketogenic diet, you aren't hungry. You know, you have a good meal, you're satisfied with, you know, the fats, with the protein, with the vegetables that you eat, and you aren't hungry and you're more likely to sustain that fast period mm. without snacking. I mean, there are loads of variations on this and there's no one particular way which is the best. I mean, what I've always done myself, again, following a, a, a similar idea, is that I always have five hours between meals, wherever possible. And then it's 12 hours, essentially, of fasting, mainly when you're asleep. But that seems to work too. And I think it's just a case for people, well, you know, what does work? What's the best one for you? How do you feel comfortable? And just seeing what effects it has on you. And then if that's not quite right, well, play around with it. But I think you're right, Lynn. I think the thing that concerns me about all these uh, studies is no one seems to look at actually what it is that you do consume. And that's mm. so important as well. And it's almost as if that doesn't matter. It's still going back to the old concept of the balanced meal as if it doesn't matter what you eat really or the quality of the food whether it's organic or not whether you're eating plenty of vegetables and fruits yeah all these things that matter and in plenty of water all these things really do matter and it's surprising how researchers don't consider it at all but you know i think that's another element that's another important part of the the of that jigsaw absolutely and again in this month's issue. We're talking about diabetes being also treated by a kinder, gentler, ketogenic diet. Mm. So that's something that's a little closer to a paleo type diet. So again, it's really watching those and cutting out those refined processed foods. Mm. And that makes a huge difference when combined with the 5512 mm. system you're talking about or mm. the 10 and 14. Mm. And, and just signing off, the researchers said that you know this simple change to your life could have a profound impact on public health systems. Um, they were saying that uh, if you could delay the onset of diabetes but even one year in people who already have the metabolic syndrome, which I say is a precursor of diabetes itself, that alone would save the American healthcare system $9.6 billion. You know, and we've got here in the UK or in the States, you know, all these healthcare systems are under immense strain. And just simple things where people care about their diets more, eat better, eat sensibly, following the body clock, whatever it is would you know profoundly change the stresses and strains on the on the healthcare uh, system yeah and even in the uk they were saying that diabetes type 2 diabetes on its own is enough to collapse the national health service so you know it's it, but simple things like this could easily be done by people and i think if people start seeing the results qu and quite quickly i think they would be more encouraged to follow this through more and i think this is what this research does well, Christmas is coming and so is 5G. Yes, the new mobile cell phone network is on its way and it's going to be super power, super fast, super everything really. It's going to be a, a complete change in the type and amount of mobile data we'll be able to download. And needless to say, all the mobile cell phone operators have been throwing 
billions of dollars and pounds at the regulators to make sure they have a slice of this extremely lucrative pie. And the trouble is no one's seeing just how healthy or uh, <laughs> lack of health is going to do to us. What impact will it have on our health? No one's checking this. And, you know, the voices are starting to come through about this. A lot of scientists are saying, look, stop this for a minute. We've got to check that this is safe for people. And because of the money, it's not happening. It's still being rolled out. No one is stopping. No one is checking. And um, there already were about 200 scientists around the world who've signed petitions saying, please stop. It's known as the precautionary approach. It's adopted by the EU, the European Union, who say, look, until we know something is safe, we don't expose the public to it, which is highly sensible. And because public health <laughs> matters more than money, well, you'd so you'd think. And there's more voices uh, joining this particular chorus, and the latest to join it is quite an eminent uh, scientist who's uh, also become to specialise in cell phones and what they do to us. And he's come forward with what is quite an interesting suggestion. His name's Joshua Pierce. And he says, well, look, if you're going to have these um, cell phones and these masks all over the place, at least space them. Space them at least one third of a mile from schools, from hospitals, and from densely populated areas and of cities and towns, especially where there are blocks of flats or whatever you like, because it's just too dangerous to do otherwise. As he quite rightly says, I'm pro-tech, but I'm also pro-human. And um, once these things are out there, once the masks are up, there's no turning back. And, you know, he's done some research. He said, look, you know, it, the research is coming through now, which is suggesting that mobile phones are not always harmless and that there have been cases of uh, brain tumours especially amongst people who use the phones a lot, and which suggests it isn't safe. And we do need to urgently stop and review this. And he said, look, even if you're not going to review it, at least space the cell towers out third of a mile, 500 metres away from schools and hospitals. And, you know, as he said, because, you know, these places, and it's the schools and the churches, these are allowing their roofs to be places where these cell towers are being installed because it's extra money for them. And you've got hundreds of kids right beneath that cell tower as a result, or, you know, within a few yards of it. And, um, you know, it's, it really is a worry. And, you know, there are a few cities around the world who've already actually put a, a halt to it, who want to do more research, who aren't happy, and their individual cities in, in America are doing the same thing. But overall, we're seeing this vast rollout, and especially in the um, states, well, I think actually everywhere, there isn't the planning uh, guidelines in place that recognise this as a health concern. Um, they, they, it's not even, can't even be considered and it can't be countered 
as a you can't put a health claim against it say look you can't put it up for this reason they will not entertain it the telecommunications act 1996 in the states and the various planning regulations in the uk do not recognize these as health hazards and as a result of that you can't appeal on those grounds well i'm sure you could regale the listeners and the viewers then with our own particular story on what we did yeah well i have two things to say about it one is um when we were faced with a cell tower that was going to be built right outside our youngest daughter's window, essentially, uh, we gathered together the neighborhood and we created what we like to call a housewife's brigade. Um, and that is we all took assigned roles about what we were going to do to create a protest. And uh, we couldn't protest it on grounds of health. They won't allow that. But we did research to find out, Brian did research about how it was, uh, there were issues about pavement furniture, meaning if, you're, if you have something spaced out and it's too wide, you know, p- uh, women with strollers, um, people in wheelchairs or with disability problems, et cetera, can't get by. So we argued it on that, those grounds. We also, you know, our company printed posters and we have stuck them around our neighborhood. Others uh, got petitions and stood outside schools and churches to get people to sign it. Bottom line, our little ragtag team, oh, and we also invited one of the, the, the um, mobile um, companies that was doing this, that was going to have the cell tower, to a meeting of ours showed them the posters and said, if you don't want this to be spread out even more, you'll stop this now. Bottom line, our little ragtag group stopped it. And we stopped it not once, but twice. So you can do that. We just bombarded our local council with this and they finally said, enough, okay. However, I wanna tell you a little bit about how this is gonna be really difficult once 5G is here. Now, 5G sounds nice like fifth generation, you know, just an upgrade, like another phone from nine to 10, for instance. It's not, it's completely different mobile technology. Um, It's it's very different frequencies. Um, Current three and 4G use centimeter frequencies. 5G uses millimeter, much shorter frequency waves, but also able to contain much more data. But here's the issue. Um, With 4G and 3G, it's beaming out all the time. With 5G, it's waiting for a request from your mobile phone. And then it sends the data so that a movie, for instance, that takes 10 seconds to download will take one second, or 10 minutes to download will take one second with 5G. That's the good side. The bad side is in order to pump out this information when your your device requests it, you need to have cell towers every couple of feet, basically, every three to 10 feet. And with antenna, the current cell towers have about 10 antenna um, per cell tower. This will need hundreds. So you're talking about completely blanketing any given neighborhood with cell towers. And this is in addition to the three and 4G towers that already exist. So 
there's going to be the idea that they're going to space it out is going to be really difficult. It's going to be health versus commerce really clashing. Mm. However, the good news is that in our upkeep coming issue of What Doctors, our February issue has a step-by-step guide to keeping yourself safe from any kind of mobile technology. I'm sure you remember being an avid tea drinker yourself, Lynn, a few years back, these amazing new tea bags came on the market, little pyramid-shaped ones, little mesh, fantastic, wonderful. I should go, go. The trouble was, what they didn't tell us, was they are all using plastic to seal them and guess what when you pour hot water or boiling water on these tea bags they release tiny particles of plastic and you drink it and um it's amazing no one it didn't occur to anyone actually this was what was happening so mcgill researchers over in canada decided to find out they tested a number of these pyramid tea bags in boiling water and discovered that the average cup was uh, contained 12 billion microplastics and 3.1 billion nanoparticles of plastic, which you are happily consuming. Now, this is these are specialist tea bags. A lot of organic tea bags, a lot of main manufacturers have become aware of this now, and they are stopping production of these plastic uh, sealed tea bags. PG tips. Uh, Liptums, some Liptums still do it, a lot of Liptums don't do it, tea bigs, uh, pucker herbs, these do not contain plastic, but there are still some out there that do. And um, the World Health Organization, a couple of years back, made colossal headlines because they raised their hands in horror saying, do you know that a lot of filtered water in plastic bottles contains tens to hundreds of particles of plastic? Well, this tea, guys, contains 15 to 16 billion particles of plastic. What's it going to do to us? Well, nobody knows. But um, fortunately, people are waking up to this, especially the manufacturers. We're seeing now that they are slowly being withdrawn from the market, Lynn. So anything to add to that? A cup of tea, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think the most important thing is you have to start looking at your overall consumption of plastic. You know, plastic mm. bottles, mm. this kind of stuff, bisphenol A, just the 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 plastics that absolutely saturate our lives. And luckily, we're starting to get much more savvy about it, Brian. I mean, mm. we're talking about trying to limit and reuse plastic, you know, plastic bags, et cetera, et cetera. We're understanding what it's doing to the environment, but we have to pay a little more attention to what it's doing to us too. Ah, chicken soup. Good for the soul. Absolutely. But you know what? It also stops malaria and it's as good as the drugs you get. It blocks the parasite that causes malaria. Now, a whole range of traditional soups, some are chicken-based, some are not, but they uh, all seem to have this ability to fight malaria. Isn't this something? Well, what happened was the uh, researchers from Imperial 
University got together with a group of kids and said, bring in all those lovely soups that your mum makes, all the traditional soups. And I think in the end, they brought in about nine different traditional soups and they tested them. And they found that all of them had anti-malarial qualities to them and they were just as effective as the drug. They slowed the growth of the parasite that caused malaria by more than 50%. And... Um, the researchers say, well, look, you know, it's, um, it's worth keeping in mind that lots of natural remedies actually do work, even down to traditional soups. And uh, as the lead researcher, Jake Baum, said, we have to look beyond the chemistry shelf for new drugs and natural remedies shouldn't be off our watch list. So souplin, it sort of fights malaria. Not surprisingly, ah, okay. not surprisingly. Remember, for generations, chicken soup has been called the Jewish penicillin. And it's because it's traditional in the Jewish families to make homemade chicken soup, homemade matzo ball soup with a chicken base. Mm. And if you think about chicken soup, beef soup, whatever, those kinds of traditional soups, they're not made with a stock cube. They're made with bone broth. That means that the mom, the grandmom is boiling away bones for mm. hours. And that releases all kinds of fantastic things, substances from the bones of the animal and collagen and all kinds of fantastic elements that are then in the broth of the soup. So this is considered the ultimate kind of food to have to prevent osteoporosis, to heal the bones and to make bones stronger hmm. and is also obviously really good for other things too yeah. well look guys that's about it this side of christmas and so you know what to do with the bones of the turkey now don't you turn it into a fantastic anti-malarial soup but in the meantime have a fantastic and wonderful and peaceful restful christmas and even more important have a very healthy 2020 and we'll catch up with you in the new year. So in the meantime, Brian Hubbard wishing a very happy Christmas. And then Mick Taggart, happy holidays, whatever religion you are. Take care now. <laughs>